Please uh, join me in Lamentations chapter 1. We will finish Lamentations 1, the first of five lament poems that we find in this book. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 22. Uh, and if you are using the, the blue ESV Bible and the seatbacks in front of you, you can find that on page 680. Uh, Lamentations starts on 685. I forgot to look if it switched over to the next page. 685, 686, somewhere in there you can find that if you're using those Bibles. Uh, if not, uh, no worries. The title of our sermon is None to Comfort, and the key words for our worshipers in training are anger, Jerusalem, and distress. So Lamentations 1, 12-22. Uh, in his book, uh, the late J.I. Packer um, writes in Knowing God that there is a type of ministry that is cruel. He says it doesn't mean to be, but it is. It means to magnify grace, but what it does rather what it does is rather the opposite. It scales down the problem of sin and loses touch with the purpose of God. The effect is twofold, writes Packer. He says first This effect is to depict the work of grace as less than it really is. Second, to leave people with a gospel that is not big enough to cover the whole area of their need. So, when we downplay and minimize sin, he says, we leave people with a gospel that's not big enough to cover their whole area of need. Now, despite what you may think, I have not made it my aim to carry on a cruel ministry among you. In fact, it is precisely in the spirit of what Packer writes here that we have set out in this journey through the book of Lamentations. Lamentations presents us with a long look at the ugliness of sin, suffering, and our fallen world. Last week, we saw the poet describe the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. at the hands of the invading Babylonian army in ghastly terms that should have made the sturdiest among us squirm in our seats. But this, while uncomfortable, is important because if we fail to see the world as it is, if we fail to see sin for what it is, if we fail to see the ultimate outcome of sin for what it is, then we should expect to hear from our own lips the same cries of agony that pass through Lady Zion's, which we will read here this morning. But if we do see the problem of sin for what it is, we see how big the gospel really is and how big the gospel really needs to be. And that there is plenty of it. It's plenty big enough to cover our whole area of need. And so again, this week, we are asked by the poet to hold our gaze upon the suffering, sobbing, woman city, Lady Zion. And this time, rather than hearing from the poet directly, we hear uh, from the woman herself from Zion herself, from Jerusalem herself, as she speaks about her anguish. We saw her speak once or twice last week, but now for an extended 
uh, lament she speaks here in all of verses 12 through 22 with the exception of verse 17. So let me read these verses now, outline them, and then we'll get to work. She says, Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. From on high He sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By His hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned all in assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a vine press, a wine press, the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against His Word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, and yet there is none to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are faint and my heart, my groans are many and my heart is faint. I want you to notice three things with me here as we look at these verses this morning. First, in verses 12 through 17, we will see Lady Zion lament the Lord's anger with one inserted comment from the poet himself. Second, in verses 18 through 19, we'll see Lady Zion proclaim the Lord's justice. And third, in verses 20 and 22, we will see Lady Zion ask for the Lord's pity. So first, look with me in verses 12 through 17, where we see Lady Zion lament the Lord's anger against her. Having called for the Lord in verse, uh, verses 9 and 11 to look and see her lowly estate, and having received no comforting response, she calls upon others to look upon her. Is it nothing to you, she says, all you passing by? Look and see, she commands, and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. 
She is in anguish and wants others to see it. And as she describes the the cause of this sorrow, of this anguish, there's well, there's some realities here that are, are difficult for us to grapple with. So there are, there are several things that we need to note here as she describes her sorrow in these verses. First is that she, she says outright that God is the one who has inflicted this sorrow upon her. Second, she describes how truly devastating this affliction was. And third, she notes that while God is ultimately the one who judged her, um, He does so through an intermediary. Let's consider each of those in turn under this first heading in verses 12-17. through First, God's anger is what brought this sorrow upon Judah. It's crucial that we see that she attributes the sorrow to the Lord Himself. Now the poet has already stated this back in verse 5. And here in verse 12 and following, Lady Zion affirms it herself. God has done this. Verse 12, she says, This sorrow which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce, His burning anger. Verse 13, He sent fire into her bones. He spread a net for her feet. He turned me back, she says. He left me stunned and faint all the day long. In verse 14, by his hand her transgressions were fastened together as a yoke for her neck. He caused her strength to fail. In verse 15, the Lord rejected and summoned an assembly against her. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. And then in verse 17, the poet interrupts briefly to speak a word of confirmation here. He says, The Lord commanded against Jacob that his enemies should be, his neighbors should be his foes. So we need to make no mistake. God hates sin, God acts against sin, God punishes sin, God burns with anger and indignation against sin. So we need to dispel any notion that God is the fluffy teddy bear in the sky who exists for our pleasure alone and He can be ignored, discarded, and torn apart by ungrateful children. Which is exactly what Israel's view of God had amounted to. But notice also in these verses that when God judges someone, right, He's not... He's not just an angry child furious at wrongdoing. He is quite effective in his judgment. Lady Zion asks, is there any sorrow like mine? Now, in in a sense, right, suffering is quite subjective. Suffering to the sufferer, perhaps, is the worst suffering that ever existed in the world because it's happening to you. But as we, we read here and other places in Scripture, there is, so, there is something unique about this woman city's suffering. And we can look back through these verses and, and note the description, not just the, not just the subject of the action, but the, the effect. 
Right? She compares God's anger to fire that he had sent into her bones. Interestingly, concerning the burning of Jerusalem, which remember, it, this, so some of these are metaphorical and historical. Uh, there's kind of an overlap here with some of these. And so uh, Jerusalem was literally burned by the Babylonians in 586. And concerning the burning of Jerusalem, one commentator has drawn together Leviticus 21.9, which says, The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. In Exodus 19.6, where God says of Israel, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion, as she's called here in verse 15, is burned with fire, literally and metaphorically, in light of Judah's spiritual adultery. God's anger had left her stunned all day long. Because of His judgment against her, her strength failed. It was like a grape being crushed in the wine press. This judgment of God, this anger of God, left her weeping, desolate, and conquered. Indeed, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, we're told. And as we'll see in the third poem in Lamentations, God does not afflict from His heart or grieve the children of man. Nevertheless, He will judge sin And it is a judgment that none can endure. Psalm 130, right? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? The anger of the Lord burns against sin. It is a consuming fire, a stunning trap, an exhausting burden, and a crushing rejection. And there is none ever who shall be able to Endure it. Well, finally, in these, these verses here, 12 through 17, we see that God's judgment against Jerusalem was expressed through an intermediary. Indeed, God doesn't inflict from his heart. We see in verse 14, the Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. Again, in verse 15, he summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. In verse 17, the Lord commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Though the Lord is indeed the primary cause of this sorrow and of this judgment, the immediate cause was the Babylonian army who assembled against Jerusalem. And we'll return to this idea at the end of the sermon. But for now, we'll say this, that even in judgment... Even in the judgment of God against a rebellious people who had, as we saw in Jeremiah 2, forgotten Him days without number, He still kept kept a distance between Himself and the judgment inflicted on His people. Perhaps a hint of the mercy that beats in the heart of the living God. So how about us? Do you believe that God judges sin? That God hates sin? Hates your sin. Not not their sin, but your sin. 
Do you believe that those... Sorry, there's something in my eye. Do you believe those who must endure that judgment will be left in utter desolation? Even through the agency of the Babylonians, they didn't do anything they didn't want to do, but God still wrought great destruction upon the, the, the wicked city of Jerusalem. And so, do you fear the wrath of God for yourself, for your children, for someone else that you know, right? We're looking out. We're, most of us are certainly going to be Christians here today. So we don't fear the wrath of God. But what about someone in your life that doesn't know Jesus? To whom might you tell of the mercy of God this week? In desperate hope that they flee from the wrath to come. Well, let's look in the second place, verses 18 and 19, where we see Lady Zion confess God's justice in his judgment. She makes clear, the Lord is in the right. She says, for I have rebelled against his word. And then in verse 19, I called to my lover. She acknowledges her spiritual adultery. Now, in these verses here, there's, there's a lesson to be learned uh, besides the, the rightness of God's judgment, which we'll get to. But before that, I want you to see something. Do you see her confession of guilt? In verse 18, For the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against His word. And what is the next word after that? But. She acknowledges God's rightness, and it's mixed and mingled with something else. She says, yes, God is in the right, I'm in the wrong, but, there it is. Yes, I sinned, guys, but I am really suffering, says Jerusalem. Lady Zion has not yet come to a full grasp of the wickedness of her sins. She called to her lovers, but they deceived her. They promised her riches, glory, and honor, but left her young men, her young women, her priests, and her elders to starve and to suffer in captivity. There's a bit of blame shifting and casting about here that we, we see in Lady Zion. Yes, I was wrong, but, I, but I'm in agony. My, my sins are perhaps a little smaller than my sorrows. What, what about us? What about you? How, how do you respond when you suffer some discipline for wrongdoing? Are you often willing to admit that you were wrong, but you still have a desire to see your sufferings as greater than your sins? This is a distraction that we must avoid. But look, by our fallen nature, we are masters at the art of false or halfway repentance. True repentance not only acknowledges wrongdoing, but also owns the wrongdoing and, and the harm that was done to others and owns it as an offense fundamentally against God. From there, the truly repentant person grows increasingly to hate sin. Finally, he clubs it to death. He actually turns from it and mortifies it. 
He doesn't focus on his sufferings and his sorrows in order to minimize his sins. The repentant person engages in an all-out war with sin. I don't think Lady Zion is not there yet. She acknowledges her wrongdoing, but it's in a fairly cursory way. In her eyes, her sorrows loom large while her sins stay relatively small. But what is it that she actually does confess and acknowledge? We should make clear here that while her her confession may leave a bit to be desired, and look, we certainly don't want to deny the fact that she is suffering tremendously. We saw that last week. Can barely look upon this agony. So it is severe. But what she does here that's right and true and something that is expressed throughout these poems is that the Lord is right. God's judgment is not wrong. It's not malicious, cruel tyranny. God's anger at sin is completely right, completely just. When all is said and done, no sinner ever will be able to say, God did me the slightest wrong. It may not always be easy to see that truth now, but the Scriptures are emphatic. God is in the right. We are in the wrong. And yet, the final portion of this poem reminds us that not only is God just, but there is, I think, the slightest hint here that God is indeed full of mercy. Look with me then in the third place at verses 20-22 where we see Lady Zion cry out for pity from the just judge. For the third time in this poem, in her, in her lament, she asked for God to look. In verse 9, she says, O Lord, behold my affliction. In verse 11, she says, Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Now in verse 20, she says, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. She goes on, my stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. It, perhaps there's a, a bit more, right? We, we see that she's, maybe she's not quite there yet, but she's getting there in her contrition over her sins. Her distress, her churning stomach, her wrung out heart are a result of what? Her rebellion, she acknowledges. So perhaps a promising sign of things to come. But she is still dragged very quickly back into her misery. In the end of verse 20. She laments the death in her streets and in her homes. And then she turns her attention to those who are afflicting her. She says they heard her groaning, but they refused to comfort her. Her enemies heard of her troubles, and they are glad. This calls us back again to last week. Last week, the poet with a broken heart struggled to put into words the suffering of this sinful woman. This week, the woman's enemies rejoice at her suffering. And she knows that they're wrong in their gladness. She says, Lord, You have brought the day that You announced. Now let it be to them as I am. 
As it is unto me, let it be unto them. She acknowledges that this day came with plenty of warning. God didn't just explode out of nowhere. He announced it for centuries, starting with Moses back in Deuteronomy 28. Moses prophesies against the, uh, the guaranteed disobedience of the people. He says, when you fail to uphold the, uh, the covenant, when you break it over and over again, eventually this is what's coming. You shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until He has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. That sound familiar? Indeed, this distress was not a surprise to Lady Zion, who remembers the announced distress that was to come upon her, but she also remembers God's announcement of judgment against her enemies, specifically Babylon here. You can read at length in Jeremiah 50 and 51 of God's promised destruction of Babylon. And I want to draw your attention uh, to just two, uh, really one passage and then uh, like a verse that sort of clarifies that one that will shed some light on, on this here in Lamentations. So Jeremiah 50 verses 11 through 15 says this, Though you rejoice, though you exult, O plunderers of my heritage, Though you frolic like a heifer in the pasture, and neigh like stallions, your mother shall be utterly shamed, and she who bore you shall be disgraced. Behold, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but shall be in utter desolation. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled and hiss because of all her wounds." Set yourselves in array against Babylon all around, all you who bend the bow. Shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Raise a shout against her all around. She has surrendered, her bulwarks have fallen, her walls are thrown down, for this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her, do to her as she has done. That's not clear what's going on in Jeremiah 51.24. He says, I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. God was going to bring about an utterly devastating destruction upon Babylon. Why? Because of the way they treated Jerusalem. What? How does that work? God sent them on Judah. How can He judge them for it? Well, on the one hand, we must simply pause at a truth like this. Acknowledge our ignorance of divine providence and worship God. 
On the other hand, we can say that while God absolutely was sovereign over the destruction of Jerusalem, as I said earlier, He didn't make the Babylonians do anything the Babylonians didn't want to do. And so we worship and we realize that Babylon acted sinfully, just as Jerusalem did. Jerusalem acted sinfully and was judged for it, and so would Babylon be. And they were. The Medes and the Persians came after them, and the Greeks after them, and the Romans after them, and on and on it goes. Consider this cry of the woman for a minute. This longing for God to judge Babylon. This isn't the petty cry of a wounded sinner simply looking for retribution on those who wronged her. Lady Zion, clinging to the justice of God, cries out, Let all their evildoing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. She says, Lord, I I was wrong and you have afflicted me justly. And they have dealt evil to me, so judge them accordingly. So the cry is, O oh Lord, pity Zion and judge her adversaries. Admittedly, this is not a full blown note of hope that we might have wanted or expected at the end of the first poem here, but perhaps it is but a flicker of hope. God will bring about true justice in all the world, and He will judge those who, who, who wrong and harm His people. God is angry at sin. God judges justly. And He's promised to pity His fallen people and to bring judgment on those who would dare to harm them. Well, I'd like you to notice with me, just as a, a final point of, of application here, before we close, a repeated theme that we find running through this entire first poem. In verse 16, Lady Zion says that she weeps and her eyes flow with tears because a comforter is far from her. The poet interjects in verse 17 and says that though she stretches out her hands, there is yet none to comfort her. In verse 21, Lady Zion says again, there is still none to comfort comfort her. And we also heard it back in verse 2 where the poet says she weaves bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. Does this refrain resonate in your heart today? Do you find yourself lacking comfort, friends? Well, might I earnestly commend to you the God of all comfort. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Comfort, comfort, Comfort. Comfort plus. But here we see something of a, perhaps a bit of a paradox. There's a tension here. Paul extends this blessing to the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction 
But didn't Lady Zion and the poet just affirm that indeed there was none, not even God, who comforted Zion in her distress and her affliction? Most assuredly, the cries of the weeping woman and the sympathetic poet come from a deeper, a more prophetic place than perhaps even they realize. Who was it that truly was left with none to comfort? Who cried out in dereliction, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These cries of abandonment must surely then be attributed ultimately to the Lord Jesus. There indeed is a sense in which God left Judah to be without comfort. But we must surely acknowledge that God's people are never truly left completely without comfort. In fact, would not the woman's recollection of God's pronounced judgment against Babylon serve as some type of comfort, even a small one? Right? The comfort is, Jerusalem, it will not always be this way. Jesus, however, experienced the fire of heaven in His bones, the net of eternity spread for His feet, the yoke of transgression fastened to His neck, the crushing weight of the everlasting winepress. Jesus was left with none to comfort. Why? So that He might extend limitless comfort to His people in their distress. So that He might extend comfort to others. So that, sorry, He might extend comfort to his people, so that his people might extend comfort to others. Returning to Packer, we read, This is the ultimate reason, from our standpoint, why God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities of one sort or another. He says it is to ensure that we learn fast to hold, we learn to hold him fast. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it a few verses down in 2 Corinthians 1, Verse 9, he says, We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So brothers and sisters, when you are under affliction, whether it's for your sins or someone else's, remember this, God is just. He doesn't afflict you from His heart, and He has afflicted His Son and raised Him from the dead so that He might extend to you the limitless comfort of heaven. So let us all once more look to Jesus who suffered and died alone, but then was raised to newness of life, that we might no longer be rejected, but that we might be embraced by God from now on and forevermore. Amen.